Hi, everybody. It's Michelangelo Caruso. I'm joined today by uh, Brandon Voss, who is the son of Chris Voss. And getting dinner with these two guys has just become a lot harder to do because of a book called Never Split the Difference. How are you, Brandon? I'm doing fantastic, Michael. Thank you for having me on, man. Your dad is the bell of the ball, man. I haven't heard a book made, make this much of a splash in a long, long time. You must be enjoying all the attention. He is quite the popular individual these days. Yeah, very, yeah. And, and rightfully so. He wrote, you know, put together a pretty good book. And uh, it doesn't hurt that his CV is uh, amazing. He was a, a the, he's the former top hostage negotiator for the FBI for over 20 years, yeah? He was, yes. Yeah, he was. Yep, did a lot of work, did a lot of good things for our country. So the book is called Never Split the Difference, and, and, it's, and it's negotiating as if your life depended on it. So there, what I like about the book is it's, um, it's this very popular story and then lesson format. So he tells a lot of stories from his travels as an FBI hostage negotiator, and then he illustrates how you can use his lessons in your everyday life, which we're going to get into in just a few minutes. I understand that you run the company for him now. Is that true, Black Swan Limited? Yeah, yeah. Well, we've actually, we, we uh, for all intents and purposes, we started the company together. You know, we've, we've been okay. working on this as a, as a two-man endeavor since the very beginning. And, it's, and I, and I got to admit, I'm a, I'm a lucky person to be in the position that I'm in. Is it, is it uh, that he started a two-man endeavor because the FBI works in pairs? Well, that's, that's part of it. The other part of it was, uh, you know, when he first got out of the Bureau, he went to Harvard to get his master's. Mm. And while he was there, we got the business started on paper, but he was still in school. And I was actually, I was still in college at the time, too. It's kind of interesting. We we're going to school by the same time. And uh, they liked him so much at Harvard that they brought him back the following year as a professor. So like the first year and a half that the business was act, we were actually doing business. We weren't, um, you know, we didn't have a lot of clients because he was busy with what he was doing at Harvard and I was finishing up my schooling. And then in 2010, you know, a contract, uh, first big contract fell out of the sky and he says, you know, Hey, I, you know, I, I'm going to need some help on this. I'm, I'm, you know, for all intents and purposes, I'm a one man show. And, uh, I came on board and been with him ever since. So Fantastic. It's been a good ride. And uh, I'm so glad you're with us today because you're going to share not only some lessons from the book, but also some uh, practical tips that our listeners and viewers can put to work in their lives and in their businesses. Uh, I, uh, I love the book and it, and it made me fire on so many cylinders because uh, like most people, you know, I'm involved in negotiations. I wouldn't call them high level, like, you know, life and death, like hostage situations, but your dad is right. There are so many, there's so much overlap. Is that because we're talking about human nature and basic uh, fundamentals like communication and psychology? That's a huge, huge part of it. And I think, I think we get a general misconception of hostage negotiations because of what we see on TV. Yeah, we get a lot of misconceptions because of what we see on TV. Yeah, that's the truth, right? You can apply that idea to a lot of things. <laughs> Yeah. But uh, at the end of the day, I mean, it's, it is it's exactly what you said. I mean, it's all about, it's just, it's conversations of influence with people that are human beings, that have human emotions, that may be, you know, something that's hard for you to relate to because you've, you know, you've experienced life differently than they have, right? They didn't, you didn't grow up in a country where kidnapping was a business and you started to see how to do it when you were old enough to talk. 
right? And and so, but it's it's the application of um of emotional intelligence. You know what oh, yeah. they talk about in so many studies today that success and emotional intelligence are so closely linked. You know, that's all it is. It just it's the application of emotional intelligence in an extreme environment. Let's talk about it, um, and maybe we'll get you to tell a couple stories from the road as well. Um, I love uh, this emotional component. You call it emotional intelligence just now, uh, the great Daniel Goldman's work. Um, yep. And your dad has referred to this as uh, this idea as emotional chess. A negotiation is emotional chess. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love it when hearing those two words together. It occurs to me, Brandon, that most people don't know how to play chess. Most people know how to play checkers. Yep. Yep. In some ways, a dummy version of chess, right? Do, you, do we find that's true in negotiation that the average person isn't really paying attention or doesn't really know the advanced moves? Well, I, I, don't, I don't know if they don't necessarily, it's not that people don't know the advanced moves, but going back to this emotional side and, and when you go into a negotiation and having your own agenda, yeah, you know, we get so caught up in our own agenda that our ability to communicate effectively falls by the wayside because we're so intent on getting our point across. And that's when negotiations become arguments. It's the heat of the moment, right? Yeah, heat of the moment. That's a great way to look at it, yeah. And your dad says in the book that deadlines, which are, some people think, part and parcel to negotiation, deadlines actually turn up the heat. So they the, do. Close, the closer you get to actually... Uh, striking a deal, the higher the emotions run, the, uh, the more stupid stuff we say, the more mistakes we make. So even if we know what to do, uh, again, it's that brainstem, the, the, the caveman part of the brain kicks in. Yep. We stop thinking strategically and we start falling into quicksand. Um, so that's why I think this, this lesson is always worth reviewing. Let's talk about time and timing because sure, by slowing down time, as your dad suggests in the book, by slowing down time, we make fewer mistakes. I was watching your dad in a few interviews, and he, uh, I don't know if he's like this in normal life, but in the interviews, he was, uh, he was not quick, and I say this as a compliment, he was not quick to respond. He was not quick on the uptake. On the uptake. He was, his, his tones were very slow and measured. Is he like that all the time? I think when, as long as he's not angry with me, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Probably <Yeah. so. laughs> and that's a way to negotiate too. Yes. He says, answer, uh, uh, take your time. Uh, one piece of advice. He says, say no slowly, say no in pieces, if mm-hmm. you will. Um, there were plenty of stories about this from the road. Uh, can you think of an anecdote or a story that illustrates time and how it played into a hostage negotiation? Ah, that's a, that's a really, that's a really good question. There's, there isn't a specific story outside of some of the, some of the specifics in the book that I can think of, but as far as like a common tactic, like, uh, something that always blew me away and and it had to do with dealing with, with time and emotion at the same time, but at when they would talk about when they would hang up on the hostage taker. Oh Yeah. And that's just nuts to think about, but using that tactic. And, and I think, um, and I can't remember the name of the gentleman that he basically learned that from, right? The, the veteran savvy uh, agent that, that taught him this whole idea. But I remember him telling a story about the first time he saw it. And everybody just kind of looking around like, what, did you just hang up on this guy? Like, you're, you got to be insane. 
And the gentleman that was name escapes me at the moment just kind of looked at everyone in the room and said, he'll call back. And about two seconds after he said that, sure enough, phone starts ringing. Terrence is on the other end, ready to, ha- ready to talk again. Well, hanging up is one of the, you know, the most abrupt and, and, and uh, obvious ways to slow things down, right? It is. Yeah, it, it very, very much is. It has some, something to do with conditioning. You know, just like uh, in any negotiation, some of your process that's involved is what, you're, what are you willing to tolerate? That's right. So conditioning them for the conversation that you're, that you're, that you're going to have. You know, the great Herb Cohen wrote a book about negotiation decades ago, and it was called uh, How to Really, Really Care, But Not That Much. Yeah, (laughs) it's a great title. The concept (laughs) of being able to walk away mentally or even walk away as a tactic, like saying, uh, I've got to call you back or something's just come up or just that not even an explanation at all, because you have something that the other person wants, which is almost always true in a hostage negotiation, yeah. Yeah, I, I'd say that that's probably true of any negotiation. Yeah. I, 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 why else would yeah. he be talking to you if he didn't, you didn't have something that he wanted? That's it. That's exactly it. So um, I, uh, I'm a big fan of Jim Brown, the former running back for the Cleveland Browns. And, you know, yep. uh, some people think he was the greatest football player that ever lived. And he was known for, among many, many other things, when, when Jim Brown got tackled, he was always the last guy to get up. Very slow in getting up. And people said later they were analyzing this. I don't know if it's true or not, but they said you could never tell if he was hurt or not. And he didn't want you to know if he was hurt, right? So it was his way of, I don't know, his way of, I guess, slowing, da- slowing things down and, and maybe even leading you astray mentally. Uh, part of this thing of playing with time. I, I just love that. Yeah, yeah. That's a great, Jim Brown is a great example. I'm a huge football fan, obviously. I mean, we got, a, we got the football story from the book. Um, but yeah, that's, I always, I was always fascinated by that. The fact that no matter what, he made it a point to get up as slowly as possible. And for that exact reason, keep people on their toes, right? Keep them guessing. Your dad says the secret to gaining the upper hand in a negotiation is giving the other side the illusion of control. And, you know, I teach that in selling all the time. It's, um, uh, and I tell uh, sales clients uh, that I, I say it's, it's not actually you're giving them control necessarily, but they think they have control, and that can make all the difference in the world. Yes, that's, that's, a, that's a, a great point. And again, going back to this emotion, human nature dynamic, but people will make deals as long as they feel like they, feel like they got the most that they possibly could. Yeah, I love that's it. Piece. Yeah, yeah. So there are many ways to uh, help people feel that they're in control. One is uh, that you're, Chris Voss, the author of Never Split the Difference, is big on. He talks about this idea of uh, questions and how, carefully it, how, how important it is to ask questions carefully. He's not big on why questions or what questions because they don't develop conversation, right? Well, the why, the why for sure. Why is something to be very careful of. And I, and the way we define calibrated questions in the book, it's, it's, it's boiled down to strictly what and how. But yes. definitely why questions are something to be, uh, to be careful with. It's like, a, it's like a weapon that if you don't understand what you're wielding, you may do damage that was unintentional. So a classic example that comes up early in the book is, and this is every, this is every hostage negotiation that's ever happened on television, where the guy says, I need a, a, you know, a million dollars and I need it in 30 minutes or some unreasonable demand. Mm-hmm. And the classic textbook FBI hostage nego- negotiation answer is, according to your dad, 
is how am I supposed to do that? Can you tell us why that's such a, because it's a non sequitur, right? Most of us are pleasers. We're going to try to get the million or we're going to try to negotiate for more time. Your dad says both of these tactics are mistakes. Right, right. Or, or what else can I get you, right? Figuring that there's got to be some other demand. And if I can get you to talk about that, I can distract you from this other one. Yeah. So again, slowing things down. But the how am I supposed to do that has a particular purpose as well. It, it's supposed to open up dialogue about to get him to solve your problem for you. Is that part of it? Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. That is part of it. Just like, just like you said, this whole, this illusion of control and how powerful that can be. And uh, the how am I supposed to do that is something we refer to as a forced empathy concept. Yes. In that you're putting yourself in a position where the other side has no choice but to genuinely consider your position. I love it. Forced empathy. So the forced empathy is coming from the, in this case, just to keep the model simple, the hostage taker to the hostage, let's see, it's from the hostage negotiator to the hostage taker, right? The forced empathy. Right. Right. Well, yeah, you're trying to get the, the hostage taker to empathize with you. Right. right? By, the, by, the, by the negotiator saying, how am I supposed to do that? The hostage taker is going to empathize with them, right? The thought that you're triggering, yes. thinking is, as it were, um, is, well, I guess that really doesn't make sense. Right. And there's a certain amount of trust level that you will have theoretically built up at this point, mm-hmm. but put them in a position where it's like, you know what? They look like they're trying to make a deal with me. They understand where I'm coming from. And it's probably isn't unreasonable what I'm asking. There's probably something else that we can work out together and triggering that thought process. Something else we refer to is what you say versus what they hear. And the how am I supposed to do that is one of those most powerful things because what is actually heard on the other side is very much focused on your position as opposed to theirs. Empathy comes up a lot in the book. You mentioned forced empathy. There's also tactical empathy, mm-hmm. which is, uh, again, it's almost a, a non sequitur, right? We don't think of empathy as being something that's strategic instead we think of it as being a natural thing not something that we would deploy as a tool and yet and yet when you're negotiating emotions are involved it's okay to do this yeah yeah that's that's a that's a great point yeah so the the tactical empathy is essentially our fancy term for the application of emotional intelligence and that's exactly it the word tactical being very strategic in your approach and how you apply empathy in every conversation. Interesting. All of this is so good. Give us a story, uh, a summary of a story, maybe your favorite story, FBI story from the book, something that uh, resonates with you. My favorite story from the book. Interesting. Because, you know, it's funny. I always tell people, you know, I've grown up hearing a lot of these stories and <laughs> that are, that are my favorite are the ones that aren't in the book, right? That are, yeah. um, that are, that are still secret in, in some ways. But from the book, I think probably my favorite story, and it relates exactly to the concept that you're referring to now and the, how am I supposed to do that? And really, it's in a lot of ways was kind of the birth moment for this concept. And it's the, uh, the Pepe, uh, Pepe Escobar case, a gentleman who got kidnapped down in uh, South America, businessman, him and his wife ran a tourist, um, tourist group down there. And uh, he gets grabbed, they come in, they coach the wife through how she's going to negotiate with the, the terrorist group. And the, the real groundbreaking moment was the first time she said, how do we know Pepe's alive? 
And while they didn't know it at the time, that not only changed the complete landscape of the conversation that they were in, it changed the landscape on how they taught uh, FBI uh, negotiators how to negotiate. So there's the how question again. And I assume that the, the hostage takers were looking at their reward, ransom money, something like this. So it's a bit of a diversion, yeah, or a vector, as they say in, uh, in uh, air travel. Mm -hmm. uh, how do I know he's alive forces them to talk about something else? Again, right. it affects the clock in some ways because it slows down the actual payment. Very much so. And then the psychology spinning again about ways to get traction. Boy, it's fascinating. Um, you know, I've, I did some research and listened to some other interviews that uh, your father, Chris Voss, did. And, and uh, he's pretty solid on the fact that women are better negotiators than men. That is bad news for us, man. <laughs> Unfortunately, it is. But it's the truth. It's the truth. I mean, you know, the, the concepts that, that we discuss have a lot to do, you know, with an intuitive sense of your read of the situation and the emotions at hand. And at the end of the day, women are more hardwired to pick those things up than men are. I mean, women have been practicing how to do it since they could talk. And, you know, when, when boys learn how to talk, oh, we, we just learn how to yell at other little boys and get into wrestling matches, right? While the girls are off having a tea party at the same age. So they're just, they're just more naturally wired to pick those things up in the environment than men are. We, we have to make real conscious efforts that women don't have to do. Yeah, and I wouldn't go as far as to say that, that women are hardwired to do tactical empathy, but they certainly understand empathy better than the male gender. Um, 100%. Also mentions that deference is a real power play uh, in negotiation. Mm -hmm. uh, it's either a weakness or a strength depending on what side you're on. And so if you're showing constant deference to the other person, what your dad refers to sometimes as sympathy, sympathy versus empathy. Mm -hmm. Sympathy is a weakness, right? Where empathy. Sympathy, yes. Yeah, right. sympathy can definitely be a weakness. It's much more about I'm feeling what you feel. Yeah. And again, that can not only, not only does that not show understanding, that's just you trying to feel what they feel, but it, it can also become a distraction. Yes. So uh, for everybody that's listening, the difference between sympathy and empathy, and correct me if I'm, I've got this wrong, empathy is I feel what you feel, or I think I know what you feel, mm -hmm. but sympathy is, oh, I know how you feel. How can I help you feel better? Is that, yeah, it's interesting. That right? that's, that's, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. And the way that I would look at it might be a little bit different than most. Okay. Empathy has much less to do with, and, and, and for lack of a better way to put this, but feeling the feel, if you will. Like in sympathy, you actually, like if you're sad and I'm talking to you, Michael, I'm sympathetic when I start feeling sad about what you're sad about and I'm feeling what you feel. Empathy has much more to do with an understanding and a verbalization. I can be empathetic with your situation without feeling what you feel or really even caring that much about it at all. But if I can verbalize to you, Michael, you feel sad for these reasons and this is why you feel this way, I'm displaying empathy because I'm, I'm able to explain to you exactly what it is that's going on in your world. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hairline difference, but in negotiation, it is a huge difference. 
It is. Yeah, the verbalization aspect of it, being able to actually say the words as opposed to, you know, our constant cutoff in, in this day and age, which is just simply, I understand. Yeah. Like, oh, I understand you're sad, Michael. That doesn't mean I actually get it. But when I can verbalize your justifications, that's a true display of empathy. When you, when you call into a help desk and it's in their script, as soon as you tell them what's wrong, they say, I understand how you feel. Yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. That is, that is in it. We, we write, we rewrite a lot of scripts for companies, Michael. I bet you do. <laughs> I bet you do. Um, so uh, I wanted to, um, again, quote something from your father. He said, never underestimate the other side's desire to correct you. Yes. So and again, we're, you're using psychology. In negotiation, there's a lot of righteousness. There's a lot of I deserve this or uh, you don't deserve this as much as I deserve this. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and there are examples in the book, Never Split the Difference, that talk about how to use um, a statement that you know to be incorrect or a statement that you're not sure is correct mm -hmm. to gain information from the other side. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's, that's got to be, that's a great skill. I, I'm sorry I interrupted you. you what were you going to finish? Tell, tell us more. Yeah, the, uh, the, something we refer to as the mislabel. And, uh, and, and at its foundational sense, a label is simply a verbal observation, right? Another, another form of, of uh, uh, tactical empathy communication skill. But it's just a verbal observation. And a mislabel is, is just making an observation that is probably incorrect. You know, making it a point to make an incorrect observation. And sometimes you do it accidentally, but really on the intentional side. And just like you said, with the ego and the pride that's, that's involved in negotiation, it puts your counterpart in a place where they feel like they have to explain themselves. Mm -hmm. They have to get you back on the right track. And the two things about that that are fantastic is people feel in control when they're speaking. Mm -hmm. Right. The illusion of control. A lot of that is based on how much can you get them to tell you. But then while they're doing all this explanation of their position and the things they feel strongly passionate about, people tend to reveal black swans, which is, you know, once you once you get those black swans out, you, you completely change what's going to happen next. You have you have altered the future. Once you've discovered those black swans, which is why, you know, Chris wanted to name the company after the black, you know, the black swan. The company is Black Swan. The website is Black Swan Limited, uh, B-L-A-C-K-S-W-A-N-L-T-D.com. Black Swan, for those of you unfamiliar with the concept, is a, is a rarity. Uh, just because you've never seen one doesn't mean there isn't one. And, uh, and it's interesting uh, how, we've used, how you're using that uh, when you talk about negotiations. Um, I think it's important to underscore that we're not uh, in favor of being unethical when negotiating um, or, um, I don't know, there's a difference between being cunning and crafting, crafty. Maybe it's a connotation difference, but we don't want, we don't want to be unethical when we're negotiating. We don't want to lie. Is that true? That's, yeah, that's exactly it. I don't know. I don't know if you could have said it with better words. But yeah, lying is not something that we are a fan of. Never, yeah. never lie. Like I think the, the and, and I can't think of where it's at in the book, but Chris talks about, you know, coming from the FBI, never lie to somebody you're not going to kill. And even, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, he, and, then he, and then to add on to that, he says, and even then, it's probably still a bad idea. That's so funny. 
Yeah. There's like screenplay material in here. You realize that. <laughs> it's sprinkled in there a little bit. It's sprinkled. Um, so, so let's go back and get that lying thing and the unethical thing when it comes to um, uh, having the other side correct you. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's not about creating a, like a lie uh, about what your intentions are and then putting that into the conversation or anything like that. I can tell you, I'd love to have a dollar for every time I've been in a negotiation with somebody and I said something that I thought for sure was a fact. You know, of course he's going to say this is true. And then mm-hmm. I say it and he says, what are you talking about? That's not what's going on at all. So uh-huh. sometimes it helps just to say it again, just to get the affirmation from the source because you never know what's really happening until you can get him to say yes a couple times, right? I think that's in the book too. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple different concepts that deal with uh, confirmation and commitment. And one of those is the that's right summary. Yeah. We talk about in the book getting somebody to say that's right. And then there's also the, the concept we refer to as the rule of three. Can you flesh out the rule of three for us? So the rule of three deals with the yes concept specifically. And um, there's so many reasons people say yes in a negotiation. Yeah. And unfortunately, a large percentage of reasons why people will say yes is to pacify you in the moment. Yeah. And we love the yes word so much that we'll hear a yes that is said to pacify us and take it as commitment from the other side on agreement. And then we get down the line, you know, two, three months down the line, you thought you were standing on a solid yes. And you realize that that's not what you were dealing with. So in those moments when you do get the yes and, 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 you know, to, to kind of set this up, we do not advocate going for yeses. But there are times when a yes will come up. And that's when you want to apply this rule of three. And it has to do with getting someone to agree to the same thing three times in the same conversation. And the, and the, the two big reasons for that is, number one, you get a feel for the yes you're dealing with. Are you dealing with a commitment yes, a confirmation yes, or a counterfeit yes? And then the second part of that, which then, then deals directly with human nature, people are much less likely to back off of something they've agreed to three times. Yeah, yeah. Much harder for people to back off. And then it also leaves you in a place to say, well, when we talked, you know, you, you agreed to this three times. Three times yeah. you said X, Y, Z. You know, what, yeah. what changed? And now they have to perjure themselves to reverse field. Exactly. I've exactly. heard this uh, called a three-peat, not like uh, in sports, but in mm-hmm. like nuclear war. Mm-hmm. One side, one, one, like the general calls down to the guy at the switch and he says, we're going to DEFCON 3. And so this guy repeats it back. Yes, sir, I understand we're going to DEFCON 3. And then this guy repeats back again. That's the three-peat. Yes, I understand that you understand that we're going mm-hmm. to DEFCON 3. This is careful communication, right? It's full of care. By getting somebody to say yes three times, we know for sure that this is what we're looking at. I love yeah, that's it. A, that's a good example. That's a good comparison. Very, very similar to that. And it's and it just, you know, it's not, not as, it's, gonna, it's a little bit more, um, I hate to use the term robotic, but that seems to be the case, especially in military, right? You want to get everything right on the line. Yeah. But, um, but, but the intention is the same. We, yeah. I know that you know that I know that we're on the same page. Right. Love it. Um, 
not surprisingly, there's, there's some uh, statistics in the book uh, from, uh, they go way back. I mean, Albert Moravian did the body language study long ago about how mm -hmm. most of what people uh, get from our communication is through visceral cues, visual cues, like body language, 55% according to the book, 38% the tone of their voice, 7% in actually what people say. That's got to really hamper things in a telephone conversation which almost all hostage negotiation seems to be is, is via the telephone. So how, um, what, are we, what are we doing to compensate or, or to learn more since we don't have those visual cues in hostage negotiation? And what can our listeners do when they're negotiating by telephone? Yeah, great, great question. And it's true, right? You are hampered in, to some degree when you're on the phone because you're losing such a large part of how the message is conveyed because the body language is not present. However, that said, you know, our rough numbers for a phone conversation is probably 80-20. Okay. You know, about 20% of the message is gonna be based on content, and the other 80% is gonna be based on tone of voice. And it's, and it's interesting, I think, in some ways, being over the phone really gets you to focus on, or, or imagine in your mind what the body language might be, just because, I mean, the tone still tells you so much. And if you're, if you're focused simply on the tone, it's crazy how it can change your, your perspective, almost like meditation, when it, you know, focus on your breathing, right? And it brings you kind of back to zero. In a negotiation, if you're just focused on tone, almost completely ignoring what they say altogether, and just focus on what is their tone telling me. If you can get your brain into that mode, you can probably imagine pretty accurately what they look like on the other end of the phone, and consequently, you're going to end up very informed as to, as to where they are in the moment. That's fascinating. I never really thought of that, that it's, it's kind of like when a person's blind, their other senses kind of compensate for the fact they can't see. They're, they're, they develop a better sense of smell, for example. Yeah, so, yeah. That's, a, that's, a great, that's a great point. Yeah, it's a great point. So if we're, on the f if we're in, in, in someone's presence, like we are on with a video call, I, I have the benefit of your tone your expression, your body language, you have the benefit of mine. Mm -hmm. This was a telephone call and we didn't have any of that stuff, you know. You would rely, and you're saying the number shifts to almost 80-20 now, you're relying 80% on my, on my tone, Yep. right? And 20% on my voice. It's a, it's a fascinating shift and it forces us to develop uh, other powers of observation. I mean, you have to be paying attention, but eventually you'll pick this up, I, I suppose, if you do enough work by telephone, which, by the way, it's getting harder and harder to get people on the phone. Yeah, there's, there's a whole slew of things in there that could, we could take the conversation <laughs> in a bunch of different directions with that, right? Yeah, that's yeah. very true. And, but right. this is a side note for our listeners. You know, something I do personally, it's going to sound weird. When I'm on the phone, I will have a tendency to shut my eyes. You know, very similar. You said when people are blind and they, they Huh? focus on their other senses they pick up more things in an effort to 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 tap into that in some way i'll shut my eyes when i'm on the phone sometimes just so i make sure i'm focused on listening and i'm not subconsciously distracted by the light coming through the window in my office you know little things like that love it love it so um uh, two more tips that i thought were fascinating that i think our viewers will like and then we'll get a couple bits of um uh, hardcore strategy to pass on to everybody um, in the book, Chris Voss talks about identifying a negative, how identifying a negative actually diminishes it. And I assume mm -hmm. that means a self-negative. If, uh, if I'm asking you for something and I say, 
uh, you probably think I'm being greedy when I ask this, but, uh, and then the other was that denying a self negative, denying a self negative magnifies it. I'm not yeah. greedy. I'm not greedy. And now I seem more greedy. Yep. Do I have that right, Brandon? Yeah. Yeah. That's almost, that's almost exactly it. Yeah. Denial definitely makes things worse. And, and really the example that we use, cause people want to say things like, like, I don't want you to be upset by this. Yeah. Or I, I don't want you to think I'm being greedy. Or I don't want you to take this the wrong way. You know, things like that. You're, at, you're denying the negative with the, you know, I don't want you. You know, you're, you're denying it at that point. And that before you say anything, you've raised their defenses. Yeah. Because now you've prepared them for like, you were going to say something that is really going to upset me. And now I'm prepared to retaliate, you know, by denying that negative. And by acknowledging a negative, it, it does, it makes it, it, it dissipates it, it makes it go away. It's a, you know, generally it's a, it'll be a negative emotion that is affecting their ability to think something through in that moment. Hmm. And if you can recognize that the negative is there, you think I'm greedy. I look like I'm being greedy for these reasons. My actions make you feel this way. And those are hard to say, especially when it's a relationship to you, because you're, you're essentially saying, like, I'm stupid, right? I'm doing things that are making this worse. When in, actually, in actuality, just because it's a display of empathy, the other side appreciates it so much, it makes you easier to work with. Yeah. I, I, I've heard this. Uh, I'm kind of dumb. Talk to me like I'm a second grader. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. which is like saying, uh, I, I'm going to keep asking you questions. And I'm going to call myself stupid or dumb before you have a chance to. And in a way that takes away your power, yeah? The other person's power. Yeah, and, and, and what it does is it, it relaxes them. Because you, you, instead, of becoming, instead of being a challenge for them, now you've revealed some sort of a vulnerability. Yeah. Which then in themselves is like, instead of like, I want to jump all over and attack you, it's like, ah, you know, I'm, now I'm seeing you as a person. Yeah. Now, it just became easier to talk to you because you went from being a challenge to somebody that's like, hey, you're just like me. Again, the psychology, man. It's endless. Human connection. It. Yeah, yeah, man. Um, so your dad says, when all else fails, we're wrapping up here soon, Brandon. Thank you so much. This has been fascinating. Uh, your dad says, when all else fails, uh, a, a line to use that can sometimes change the outcome is it seems like you're powerless in this situation or it seems like you're powerless here um, because it's like a personal affront to the other person's what authority. Yeah. Yeah. And it also hits like one of the most important things to all human beings is our autonomy, mm-hmm. our ability to operate and make our own decisions and, and move the ball forward under our own power as it were. Mm-hmm. And when you start to question someone's autonomy or put them in a place where they feel like their autonomy is being taken away. Mm-hmm. People tend to either lash out or bend over backwards to get their autonomy back. And if they lash and, out, and if you've played all your cards already, and this is the last thing be- you know, before you're done, if yeah. they lash out, it's over with. Somebody's going to hang up on somebody. Probably so. Probably yeah. so. Yeah. It, it, it also depends on the, the application because that, you know, and then, and I, without getting too far into it, but just the, you know, the application of emotional intelligence, being aware of someone's emotions and then influencing those. Yeah. If you're trying to upset them for a particular reason. 
and you have a strategic way in the way you're going to communicate that's going to lead them to an emotion that you know is going to be in your favor. In my opinion, that's a good application of emotional intelligence, even if that emotion that you're causing is them being upset. Now, we wouldn't advocate doing that a lot, but if there's a method to your madness as opposed to I just made them mad and reacted to it, but I made them mad for these reasons, that tends to change the landscape a little bit. And going back to the powerless thing, people, want to, they're going to react one of two ways. They're either instantly going to turn you on to the person that does have the power, yeah. or it's going to, they're going to change them into a mode where it's they're a problem-solving mode where it's like, you know what? No, I can't handle this. There is something here that I can do, and this is what it's going to be. It's almost like ego steps in, but their ego at this point is going to be in your favor. Love it. So I have two favors to ask before we, we say goodbye. You okay? Lay it on me, man. Lay it on me. This is, this is softballs for you, man. <laughs> so the first one is to help the people listening who are looking, they're, they're working at jobs at companies and they're all going to be going in this year for a uh, performance review. And with the performance review comes a chance for a salary increase. Mm -hmm. I, I know it's covered a bit in the book. Uh, what, uh, what's your best advice for people who are negotiating a salary increase with the boss? Great question. Great question. And two things that I'll, that I'll just hit on that, I, that we iterate in the book, but I think are, are powerful, powerful tools in these situations is, is number one, when it comes to pushing on terms, especially in a salary negotiation, if you can gently push on non-monetary terms, chances are they're going to give you a money increase to solve the problem because that's the easiest thing for any company to do is just throw more money at it. You don't actually have to think or pull a team together to throw money at something. So if you push those non-monetary terms, yeah. So quick example, I'll make one up. Tell me if I'm right. Uh, I, want a I, want a, I want a salary increase, but I'm going to ask for two weeks more vacation. And then the boss is going to say, we can't give you two more weeks more vacation. How about a salary increase? Basically, that's, it's, it sounds nuts. <laughs> oh, man. But that's basically because how it works. We got a great, yeah, we got a great, we got a great story. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Please, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm excited. It's easier for him to pay the money than it is to give you the vacation because he can't do without you for that two weeks, right? Plus, he's got he's to go, he's got to straighten things out on his end, right? If you're going to be gone for another two weeks, then people have to be on notice. There's got to be somebody there to pick up the slack. There's probably got to be some sort of a committee meeting. And, you know, there's just, there's all kind of things like that that come up and, and none of, you don't got to deal with any of those problems if they're just giving you more money. And you're going to get what you wanted anyway, even though you're asked for something else. That's, <laughs> that, is a, that is worth the price of admission right there, Brandon. What's the second thing you wanted to tell us about a salary increase? Um, and actually, just one, one more quick point on that last one, because I just love this story. But there's a, a former student of ours at Georgetown was in our MBA program, and she got like a, a 20% or not, excuse me, she got like a $20,000 increase on her salary because she was French and she was renegotiating her salary with her boss. And in France, they have more vacation time. And she said, I'm French. I'm used to having more vacation. Right? I need more vacation. I'm French. And the boss said, I can't give you more vacation, but like here's another 20K on top of your current salary. So, yeah, that's exactly it. It's, it's wild how those things work. And a fabulous uh, French accent. Well done. Yeah, right. Exactly. I'm sure the French accent probably helped, right? That didn't sound like charisma French. in the moment. That didn't like, sound like French or a woman, Brandon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Twofold. She had two things on her side there. Love it. So um, one last thing. This is a favor for me now. 
uh, I travel a lot on the speaking circuit. I'm often in hotels. I know every hotel has a luxury suite. Um, sometimes I'm upgraded just because that's nice. Uh-huh. I don't have it, man. I miss it. And I think I'm missing an opportunity at the front desk. I always feel like I'm taking advantage of somebody if I'm asking for a room that, um, you know, that wasn't negotiated as part of the deal. And, and often, by the way, I'm, I also think I'm talking to the wrong person much of the time. What tip do you have for me for getting, getting into the presidential suite more often? Yeah, that's a, that's a great one. And, and uh, my father and I, since we travel so much for work and doing trainings and things, I mean, we, we have fun with this one a lot. And, and we, uh, we have a tendency, like if we're going to the same city, yeah. we arrive at different times, but we usually have dinner together and we'll sit down and compare notes. Okay. Right, like, ah, what'd you negotiate getting on the plane, right? Did you, what'd you negotiate with the front desk coming in nice. the door? So we have fun with stuff like that. But yeah, one, the first thing is like, it's amazing how far a smile can go. You know, just making it a point to be nice. And, and, and it does really two things. It affects your mood in the moment. It would actually make you, put you in a, in a more positive frame of mind just because you're making that effort. Yeah. And something that Chris says in the book, you know, your brain works up to 31% better when you're in a positive frame of mind. So when you're making that effort, at first it's going to feel awkward. You know, I'm not naturally one of those type of people. So when I do it, it's like, ah, okay, come on, come on, Brandon, you know, get your head in the game. Let's, let's do it here. But then when I'm a couple of minutes in, then it becomes natural. My brain capacity has gone up because I'm feeling better. Mm-hmm. My energy is affecting their energy. And then suddenly I, I have the, this, this ability to influence the, the situation I wouldn't have had otherwise. So that's, that's a big one. And then, and then secondarily, you know, something we, we teach early on in a lot of our, uh, some of our virtual online courses, some of our basic courses, is what we refer to as the name discount. You know, using your name to get a discount on something. And, and a real shortened, abbreviated version of it would be something along the lines of, you know, do, do you guys have a Brandon discount today? You know, is there, is there a Brandon discount <laughs> that I can take advantage of while I'm here? You know, some, something along those lines. And using that same approach about, you know, there isn't, there isn't like a Brandon upgrade that you guys got, right? You guys don't have like a Brandon suite upgrade that you haven't used today yet? Like Brandon is a brand name or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Use, using the, injecting that little bit of humor and lightheartedness, but you're still making an ask. Yes. And because of that humor and lightheartedness, it just, it makes it that much easier to deal with. I love it. Zig Ziglar, the famous motivational speaker, had a great riff on this. He, he was a master salesperson, of course, and he told the story Genius about... Genius guy. Genius level guy. Probably have heard the story, but for people that haven't, uh, he's checking into the hotel. He wants to get the presidential suite. And he says, uh, listen, uh, I need a room for tonight. And they say, I'm sorry, sir, we're all out of rooms. We don't have any, uh, any vacancies at all. And he said, no, no, you don't understand. I'm, I'm exhausted. I've had the day from hell. I don't think Zig swore. I had the day from heck. He said, it's been, I, I've got to stay here tonight, and I, I just know you've got a room for me. No, sir, we were completely full. I can recommend you to a hotel. It's five miles down the road. He says, tell me this. Do you have a, a, a presidential suite in the, in the room? Uh, because I, I know you have to keep that open for dignitaries that come to town. And they always say yes. And he's, he says, well, I can promise you the president won't be coming by tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how often that actually works. But this idea of staying open to the possibilities is really the underlying concept here when you're negotiating anything, whether it's a hostage, a salary, or a presidential suite at a hotel. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And that's great. I love like the zigzag, like his, his ability 
his natural ability to inject some sort of humor yeah. into just about every interaction was was I mean it was it was it was fantastic. And that's one of the things we talk about in negotiation. Like we wish as part of our training we could teach people how to be funny. Yeah. Because it's amazing how far humor can get. You can be a horrible negotiator, but if you're funny, chances are you're actually not that bad at getting what you want. It might even be more of an art form because you'd have to be funny and funny under challenging circumstances. That and that's the hardest part. Exactly right. When it's when it's tough and the environment does not breed humor and you you pull it out anyway. Yeah, that's great. Well, Brandon Voss, you are a treat. I understand that technically speaking, and I apologize for not giving your official title earlier, uh, that you are the Director of Training and Operations for Black Swan Limited. You're in Washington, D.C., correct? I am. I'm in the D.C. I'm in, I'm in technically in College Park, but just a stone's throw from downtown. Very good. You're so impressive. Your company's impressive. Your father is impressive. The book is impressive. Ladies and gentlemen, never split the difference. Uh, these are negotiation tech tactics and techniques that you can use in your very own life. The website is blackswanltd.com. And uh, Brandon Voss, you've been a pleasure. I hope to run into you guys out on the speaking circuit. Michael, I hope to get the chance to meet you in person and shake your hand. I, I very much enjoyed this. Thank you for having me on. My pleasure. Best of luck with the book and in, uh, in the speaking world and with your training. We'll talk to you soon, okay? Thank you. See you next time.